The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. From Bloomberg World Headquarters, I'm Charlie Pellet. The S&P 500 index trading near a 10-month high. It is a down day for stocks, 13 minutes to go ahead of the close. Investors are evaluating the gauges run toward a record amid lingering concerns about the impact of lackluster global growth. The S&P 500 index little change now down less than 0.1%, falling two points to 21.17. NASDAQ down 12, a drop of two-tenths of 1%. Dow Industrials now down three points, little change there at 18,001. Tenure up 7.30 seconds, the yield 1.67%. Gold up 10.50 the ounce to 12.72, a gain of eight-tenths of 1%. And crude oil down 1.3%. $50.59 a barrel. I'm Charlie Pellet, and that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Now it is time for the ETF report, and it's brought to you by Vanek Vectors ETF. Expect more from your munis, target tax exempt income by maturity and credit quality, all with low cost ETFs. Visit vanek.com slash muni. Vanek, access the opportunities. For our report today on the ETFs, we turn to Catherine Cowdery. Investors are awaiting a potential market-moving event in the coming week. It's something that people should be aware of because it's a big variable in investing in emerging markets in China right now. And it's not something you would think about because it has nothing to do with macro you know, situations or the Fed or anything. Bloomberg intelligence analyst Eric Baltunas. So what is this event? MSCI will unveil the results of its annual review. Assets worth $10.5 trillion are benchmarked to MSCI's indexes. About $36.9 billion are tied to emerging market ETFs, and $435 million is in ETFs to track frontier markets. Beltuna says there's speculation about whether MSCI will include China's mainland stocks or A-shares. If they say that A-shares from China will start to be included... China will go from, say, an 18% weighting, which it is now, and they'll add maybe 1% or 2% at first, so it'll go up to 2021. But over 10 years, it'll go, it'll double. That's how big the A-share market is. We're talking about a $5, $6 trillion market. And that's your Bloomberg ETF report. I'm Catherine Cowdery. You're listening to Taking Stock with Pim Fox and Kathleen Hayes on Bloomberg Radio. In December 2013, our next guest was on the road in India. He was interviewing locals in connection with the upcoming elections. His new book is entitled The Rise and Fall of Nations, Ten Rules of Change in the Post-Crisis World. He is the previous author in 2012 of Breakout Nations. Rushir Sharma is the head of emerging markets and chief global strategist for Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Rushir, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks. Tell us what you learned by traveling around India and speaking with locals about their lives. Well, uh, that chapter that you're referring to is called The Price of Onions. And what it really told me was that 
how concerned the population there was about inflation. And when the population is really concerned about rising prices, that can be the absolute death knell for the government in power. So in India, there was a lot of resentment back then about what the government had done with uh, uh, tackling inflation. And a few months later, the central government lost uh, the election in a landslide uh, victory that Narendra Modi enjoyed in May of 2014. So therefore, I think that inflation tells you a lot about what's happening in a country. How much is it investing? And what is the political mood like in a country? And so I think that visit sort of solidified that opinion. Uh, it's a, such a great time for a book like yours to come out. And of course, it's your second big book on uh, ETS. And a story this week on uh, Bloomberg mentions that uh, assets of BlackRock's flagship ETF emerging market debt surged to $6.5 billion, eclipsing the largest mutual fund in the category. ETFs gaining ground. But I think the story here is really the interest that uh, – people have now in emerging markets. I guess it's partly because they can't get so much return in U.S. and other developed countries, and they're willi- willing to take a gamble on, on emerging markets. Well, emerging markets have underperformed a lot this decade, and I think that there is a growing view now that uh, maybe the worst is behind us. The valuation of the entire asset class looks very appealing. But, of course, as you know, that as an active manager, I cannot be endorsing ETFs, and we have at least sort of um, always beaten the benchmark. And I think that the entire issue here, and that's what I, I speak about, uh, about in my book, is that to stop talking about emerging markets as a homogeneous entity, that, you know, this is nearly 40% of the global economy now, and we need to distinguish the good, the average, and the ugly within uh, that very large space. And so that's what I try and do, that try and sort of see what are the 10 most important things to look at to try and distinguish uh, between different countries. And we are seeing that this decade, that you have countries like Philippines, which have done very well. On the other hand, the countries like Brazil have been an absolute economic disaster. And I think that that's what we have to do here, which is to sort of spot the winners and separate them uh, from the losers. And that's the game, that you'll always have some winners and losers in such a large space. Rushir, the good, the bad, and I'm not going to include the ugly because I want you to speak about a chapter about good billionaires and bad billionaires and what we can learn. Yeah, you know, like five years ago, I would have not included a chapter on reading income inequality in a country, but it's become such a big global issue now. And everywhere I go from uh, Seoul to Santiago, income inequality is a very big issue. The problem is that how do you get a proper read on income inequality? The data that economists look at, like Gini coefficient and other such stuff, is very backward-looking. And what I'm trying to do here is to figure out that when is it that the popular mood in a country turns against the rich or turns against the wealth creation. And that way, uh, my sort of uh, method that I've developed is to look at the good and the bad billionaires in a country. What do I mean by that? Which is that when a country is producing wealth in the so-called good industries, which is industries which reward genuine and um, entrepreneurial talent, like in manufacturing, like in technology, that's good billionaires. On the other hand, when you're producing wealth in industries such as um, real estate, mining, commodities, often with the help of government connections in that country or because you inherited a lot of that wealth, that is perceived as being bad. So what I try and do is to have a look all the time 
at the ratio of good to bad billionaires in a country and what that tells you about a country's fate. Well, you know, I, so many great chapters. Let's take a look at why democratic capitalism beats the Chinese brand, because over the past 10 years or so, there have been a lot of people saying, oh, that this the, the brand of Chinese capitalism works best for them and probably better than U.S.-style capitalism would. And, of course, now we see the China economy slowing. We see George Soros over the past, you know, four or five, six months uttering words here and there about a debt bomb that's about ready to go off in China. Very, very cautious there. What do you see? Yeah, I think that as far as China is concerned, uh, its leadership, uh, you know, did a lot of right for the country till about 2008 or so. And then that same authoritarian leadership, which could take very quick decisions, began this huge stimulus program in, uh, at the depths of the crisis, and they're still paying a price for it. So my point here is the fact that authoritarian governments can make quick decisions but they either get it very right or very wrong. And when they get it very wrong, there are no checks and balances to put them on the right course. And also for every success story like China, I can point out to you many authoritarian regimes in Africa and Latin America who got it totally wrong. So it really depends on the quality of the leadership. And in China's case, uh, I think what's happened is this, that till about 2008, they were moving towards a more market-oriented economy, and also their debt levels were quite stable. But since then, they've gone into reverse gear, which is that the state has become more interventionist, and their debt levels have exploded. Here's one statistic which tells you as to why you should be worried about China. Um, it takes now $6 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth in China. At the peak of the U.S. housing bubble in 2008, it took $3 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth in uh, the U.S. So that's how out of balance China has become today and how rapidly debt is growing to sustain an increasingly slower economy. Rashir, speak about the United States if you can. You talk about deep trade links, strong manufacturing and technology, as well as good billionaires such as Bill Gates, but you also have a debit side. Yeah, I think that... You know, like in no country in the world today are we going to be able to find a country that hits all my 10 rules and sort of checks all the boxes. I think that's uh, – so to put that in perspective, it's very easy to get pessimistic about a country because it's very easy to find fault with a country because no economy is growing at the pace that it was growing last decade from China to India to Brazil to the United States. But we have to keep in perspective that you have to compare countries on a relative basis. And in that regard, I think that the United States is still doing relatively better than many developed countries uh, because its demographics are better. Its working age population is at least still growing compared to many other countries where it is shrinking, including in China now. Its debt level has stabilized um, after growing very rapidly last decade. And I also feel that uh, on some other uh, metrics, such as the good billionaires, the United States still does better than many other countries. That's why in very few other countries would a billionaire be able to make a run for a president, as is the case here, because in Russia to Mexico, billionaires are so hated in those countries. That's just a taste of what you're going to get when you read a very interesting new book, The Rise and Fall of Nations, Forces of Change in the Post-Crisis World by Ruchir Sharma. Ruchir says you can't talk about emerging markets anymore. You have to go country by country. This is Taking Stock on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.